0: Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog, Unpickled. I've been writing about what it's like to be sober since the very first day I quit drinking back in 2011. I tell my stories there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And before we meet today's guest, I just want to remind you again that In July, when I go on vacation, I'm going to go to the lake and edit the novel that I'm writing, the novel I hope every one of you will read when it comes out, More Shall Be Revealed. Uh, I am going to be recording before I go. Three special interviews, one with Ellie, the founder of The Bubble Hour, former co-host Amanda, and former co-host Catherine. And when I go on holidays, I'm going to post all three of those at once so that you have all of those to listen to while I'm away. So I'm really excited about that. And... um, those of you who have been listening to the show for a while or have kind of dug through the old archives and are familiar with those voices, I know you'll be happy to hear them because we just love and miss them so much. I also need to reach out to Lisa, that darling, darling Southern gal. She's a busy lady, and I'll try to get her on as well. If we can squeak her in this summer, that would be fantastic, too. So listen for that. Uh, it's coming in July. And if you're listening to this, you know, in the future, I'm talking about Season 7, this mid-portion of Season 7. So that's my housekeeping for today. Now let's meet our guest. I want you to meet someone who I adore. Her name is Nancy. We met for the first time uh, several years ago and kept in touch off and on over the years. And as Nancy tells you her story, you'll hear that it hasn't been exactly a straight line. And um, and yet uh, she has got uh, really to a great place and is going to be sharing with us about that. And I've been wanting to have her on the show for a while. And she wrote this beautiful, beautiful poem recently that she shared with a little group that we have. And I read it in my PJs, in my bed, and I just had tears streaming down my face at just the amazing truth bomb that this poem represented. And so I begged her to come on the show and read it for us. So you're going to get to hear that later in the podcast as well. So without any further ado, meet my friend Nancy. Welcome to the Bubble Hour.
2: Oh, thank you, Jean. I'm very happy to be here. And it's so good to hear your voice. I was saying before we started recording that it just soothes me to hear that familiar voice. And even (laughs) in the nervousness of being interviewed, I I feel better hearing that. And years of listening to the Bubble Hour have just really imprinted your voice as as a voice of comfort. So
1: thank you. That means a lot to me. It does. And I'm glad that this, this, this place, this space, this time is, um, a comfortable place to be, because that's really what it's all about. It's just that I don't think the world stops and listens to each other enough. And that's what I love about doing this is just sitting down and and having a chat. And especially with people that we don't get to see all the time. I mean, I love my hairdresser, but I spend more time with her than I do with my dear friends and people that I want to hear more from. So I love that we take Mm -hmm. the time to pause and tell our stories. I'm glad you're here, and um, I know that it it isn't always easy to do this, so I appreciate you doing it. So tell us about yourself, and tell us your story. Okay, well, I am
2: 54 years old, and I uh, grew up in a lovely little college town in New England. And in some ways, I think it was quite idyllic. My dad was a college professor for many, many years, and my parents had a happy marriage, uh, and I had two wonderful siblings whom I'm still very close to. Um, And I grew up in an environment that was pretty intellectual, pretty uh, academic, of course, um, surrounded by college professors and their children for the most part, my parents had a lot of parties, um, as did the other faculty at their college, a lot of cocktail parties and dinner parties and so I certainly saw drinking as a part of how adults socialize and as a nice part of it, I mean it was it was a sort of celebratory thing for my dad to make drinks uh, for everybody and I I will date myself a lot because what I remember is whiskey sours and planter's punches that he made. And I don't think anybody drinks whiskey sours and planter's punch anymore, as far as I know, unless they've become retro drinks. But uh, they were very sweet, fruity drinks. And even as a probably an 8, 10-year-old, when my job was to walk around serving hors d'oeuvres, At cocktail parties, I would occasionally be allowed a sip of a whiskey sour, and I remember thinking they were absolutely delicious and that I was looking forward to someday being allowed to drink one of my own. But my first real drinking uh, started when I was in high school, and I had a, a serious boyfriend for the first time. I was about 15 And his name was Tommy. And Tommy was um, very, to my mind, very smart, very handsome, very athletic. He was all things cool to me. And I felt really inferior to him. And I remember that feeling very well of nervousness within the relationship with, with Tommy and a kind of amazement that he wanted me to be his girlfriend. And that uh, even extended to things like the nervousness about when Tommy was going to kiss me for the first time. It was it was scary to me. And uh, one night we were alone in my parents' kitchen, and he opened up the refrigerator and took out a big bottle of Suave Bola, which was always in the refrigerator in my parents' house, a big bottle of cheap white wine, and poured me a glass, and I, uh, I drank it down, and I was in love. And it was not with Tommy. It was with this drink that seemed to just ease away so much of my anxiety and self-doubt and lack of confidence. And made me feel like I was okay i could I could talk to Tommy and I could let him kiss me, and I could feel everything was okay and um, and then I had another one, and it felt even better and that was really my my introduction to the powerful effects of alcohol on someone who is for whatever reason pretty prone to being influenced by it being um, kind of magically transformed by it um, and that that feeling really I remember feeling this is what I've been missing this is what I need in my life <laughs> now I'm I'm better I can face anything uh, not having any idea of course at the age of 15 that um, that was all. A lie, <laughs> that it was false, giving me a false sense of confidence. And ultimately, I think getting in the way of my developing a true sense of confidence, because of course, if you're not really facing the things that are scary or make you nervous or self-conscious uh, in, a, in a genuine, unmedicated uh, way, you're not growing.
0: Um,
2: so I I went on using alcohol to some extent through high school, and it wasn't it wasn't all the time. We didn't have easy access to alcohol at that point as I remember and and the friends I hung out with were only drinking once in a while, but boy, when I did get a chance to drink, I really enjoyed it and I really felt it was it was okay for me to talk to Tommy and just I could say what I wanted to say, and I thought I sounded just as smart as everybody else. And um, it created that kind of illusion that we all know alcohol can create for you. And then I went away to college and uh, Tommy was long gone from my life, but I was still relying on alcohol to get that relaxed feeling. And at that point it was definitely a part of partying along with, um, you know, most of the other college students I was at school with. And it was very easy to normalize it at that point. I think it felt like this is what everybody's doing is getting drunk on the weekends and pre-drinking before going to a party. And, um, I certainly wasn't not alone in it. And yet over those college years, I did even then, and that was you know, 34, 35 years ago, um, uh, have a sense that something wasn't quite right about this, that um, I was maybe drinking a little more than my friends, having more hangovers, uh, be more prone to binging, feeling very guilty about it. I had my first blackout drinking at that stage. Uh, and again, I wasn't alone. Other college students would say they couldn't remember the night before. Uh, but I think for me it turned kind of ugly even back then so that sometimes it was a part of partying like everybody else and then other times I would get very emotional when I was drunk I have memories of kind of uh, again it, it I think involved a boyfriend who once again I had this sense of not being good enough for this was a guy who was... Um, star of the swim team and very handsome and very social and outgoing and well-liked and confident. And, and to keep up with that
1: feeling of
2: being good enough for him, I think drinking played a big role again. It, it just numbed me out and softened the, the edges of that anxiety and insecurity But it also meant making a fool out of myself sometimes, waking up feeling very embarrassed by how I'd behaved the night before Um, and when things went south with that boyfriend, just becoming so distraught that then alcohol took on the role of escape from feeling so distraught. So I, I was heartbroken. He broke up with me. I started drinking more then. And then the drinking would lead to uh, sort of dramatic scenes of confronting him or going to his dorm room in the middle of the night in tears and upset. And and it felt pretty out of control. Um, and then I also, at that time, was really experiencing the shame and the regret that go along with that kind of drinking for so many of us, the feeling that, there's something wrong with me. So I had kind of come from a place of not quite feeling good enough, not feeling adequate, added the alcohol to try to soothe that feeling, and then the alcohol you know, magnified that feeling because I was embarrassed by how I was behaving, and I felt out of control. And even back then, and that was such a long time ago, and that's part of why, for me, it's hard to tell this story because it spans a very long stretch of time. Um, so I always have this feeling like, well, why the heck didn't I get this under control longer ago? Um, but back then, I, I did start trying to control it, even as early as, you know, my early 20s, um, trying to count my drinks limit how often I was drinking. I remember pouring out bottles of alcohol on hungover mornings when I was feeling ashamed, determining I was going to manage without it. And then it would just, at that time, I was not, I was not thinking about quitting altogether. And when my, you know, in my college years, early twenties, it didn't seem even, I don't think it even probably crossed my mind that I might just not drink at all. So it was. It was the beginning of many years of trying to do it without harming myself, which, as most of your listeners will be familiar with, is is a, an, a nearly impossible task. Um, so I graduated from college and had done very well in school, in spite of the feeling of not being good enough. All evidence pointed to my being perfectly capable. (laughs) And um, I went uh, to work as a teacher for a few years. And during those years, I, I, I have some happy memories of those times in my life because I loved teaching. I loved working with, I was working in a school for kids with special needs. I loved my students. I was starting to develop a sense of who I wanted to be professionally and what I was good at. I knew I was good with these kids I was working with and with their parents. Um, The drinking was taking place with my co-teachers after work. We would go out for drinks fairly often. I was still watching it then. I was still kind of monitoring my drinking. And I have a memory of coming into work one morning uh, and talking to the other two other women I with in a classroom and saying, okay, I have a plan uh, for cutting back on my drinking. I'm going to drink no more than three drinks on a Friday, no more than four on a Saturday, not drink during the week except maybe once, and then I'll only have two. I mean, it was just the the details that we come up with in in devising a plan that we think is going to control things. Um, And I remember being embarrassed because – those two women I presented my plan to said, wow, that's a lot of drinking. And I had gone at it thinking, look how little I'm going to drink. I'm, I'm going to get this under control. And to them it was, you drink that much? And that was a, another moment of, of shame and realization that, well, maybe I'm not just like everybody else and maybe this isn't okay um, but the, the struggle went on, the attempt to keep it, keep it under control, keep it so that it didn't kind of have a major impact on how I did in life. Uh, I was getting very interested in uh, mental health issues at that time. I was interested in becoming a counselor. I loved the work I was doing with the families of kids I worked with. I decided to go to graduate school to get a master's in social work, and then I entered a period of time that was really wonderful in many ways. Um, I was in a program where I was just on campus with other students during the summer, and I was immersed in a group of mostly women, some men, all people who were interested in becoming therapists or social workers of of some form and Everybody was interested in psychology and wellness and learning to take good care of ourselves and other people and how were we going to help people. And that was a, that was a real bonding experience and a comfort to me to, to get into that group of people. But during the school year, I was uh, doing internships in social work, uh, in the Boston area. So I was in both years of my social work training in top Boston area hospitals, working with kind of the best of the best in the area. And um, one of those years I had a boyfriend. So you may be sensing a theme here that these boyfriends sometimes were somehow a catalyst for feelings of, am I really good enough? This one was a, a guy who was the chief resident in psychiatry at the hospital where I was working, and I was a social work intern. So there's a bit of a – there's definitely a hierarchy of, you know, the social workers, and then there are the psychologists, and then above them even are the, are the psychiatrists, at least in the system around here. Um, so here was the chief resident in psychiatry, smart guy, uh, clearly on a path to success uh, clearly knew more about a lot of things than I did, and I again had that feeling of oh, i'm not i'm not good enough for him. am I really as smart as he is am i am I really um gonna be okay myself and I think my drinking escalated again. Had really, I hadn't been drinking much when I was with my, my kind of soul sisters in graduate school over the summers, but then it, it escalated through the, the winter, the school year months um, when I was involved with him. And, uh, you know, I think that I, too, was on a good path. I was doing well in school. I was getting a lot of support from supervisors who thought I was a terrific intern and that I was going to make a, a great contribution to the field. And it, none of that mattered. I I could hear it a thousand times, and I still felt, but am I really any good at this? Am I really going to be a success? Will I really be able to help other people when I feel so kind of flawed and vulnerable myself? uh and I had some depression at that time. I was really struggling with feeling depressed and anxious. Those two things kind of intermingling throughout many years of my life. Um, and I think drinking at that point was soothing some of that to some extent or numbing it in any case. I came to a point where I really wanted to get out of that relationship with the with the psychiatry resident. Um I felt he he saw through me. He knew that I had a drinking problem. Um, He wanted me to certainly cut back, if not stop. And I knew that that relationship wasn't making me happy, and I wanted out of it, but I agonized over that. And one of my memories is of deciding that, to reward myself for breaking up with him, which was this goal that I was striving for, was being able to end the relationship. I was sort of riddled with guilt that I was going to hurt him, I was going to disappoint him. And, um, but I told myself, if I break up with him, I can buy myself a little television. I was a poor graduate student who didn't have even a TV. I was going to buy a television, and I was going to buy a big bottle of wine, and I was going to sit in front of the TV and drink my bottle of wine and eat a big plate of pasta. And that was how I was going to reward myself for making the break with this boyfriend. And I did it. And I broke up with him and I immediately went out and got those things and settled into my little studio apartment to numb out on wine and television and pasta and kind of feel the relief of having broken up with somebody I needed to get away from and as luck would have it he stopped by and he wanted to see how I was doing and saw me there with my wine and uh, said you're an alcoholic and he left and kind of slammed the door behind him and I was uh, ashamed as I you know that word keeps coming out I realized um, but there was some shame, but there was also resentment that, oh, that he's so judgmental. He thinks he's so much better than me. Uh, I'm not an alcoholic. I just was drinking because he made me so unhappy and because it was hard to break up with him. And there were always sort of mitigating factors, reasons why I thought I drink because of this or that, not because of something that is deep inside me kind of amiss and and isn't working So I didn't stop drinking after that. (laughs) Um, I went back to my last summer of graduate school, and that fall went to a wedding of a classmate who was a very good friend, and that's where I met my now husband. So we met at that wedding, uh, and I got absolutely smashed at my friend's wedding. And... um, that was the beginning of my relationship with my now husband. And he was incredibly nice to me, uh, nice about my drinking, uh, you know, kind of normalized it quite a bit, told me it was okay and that maybe I could just cut back a little if it was um, worrying me, but that he didn't think I needed to be so worried about it. And I was still functioning just fine, getting my. Masters, got a job right away. We were together from then on. And looking back, he would say, oh, you, we weren't drinking that much. You, I don't know why you think it was such a big part of our early relationship. And, you know, maybe he's right. Maybe it's somewhere in between my, my memory of it and his. But my memory is that it was kind of something we did together all the time, was drinking. And maybe not out in an out of control kind of binging way, and not a lot of scenes of of disaster. Although there were a few. I mean, I do remember some blackouts and sometimes when one time when he had to carry me home from a friend's bridal shower because I'd had too much to drink. He had to kind of carry me out to the car. Uh, and still, he he was sort of forgiving and. Uh, probably enabling is really the right word because he loved me and he didn't want me to feel bad. And, um, he thought I overthought it and should worry less about it. Uh, and so I really tried. Then I redoubled my efforts to control my drinking versus quitting. Um, uh, I did quit for stretches of time. Maybe I'd say I'm not going to drink for a week or I'm not going to drink for a month. Maybe I'd make it a month. But mostly what I was trying to do was reduce the uh, amount of drinking I was doing. And I really tried a lot of different things. And I remember a book called How to Control Your Drinking So You Might Not Have to Quit. And that book, I, I... Maybe it helped somebody. My guess is a lot of people like me latched onto it, thought, ah, I can control it. I don't have to quit. And it has you come up with a plan for, you know, how many drinks you're going to have when and tally your drinks and keep track and, and kind of keep a record. And for me, it was, it was another stab at finding a way to keep things under control that didn't ultimately work very, for very long at all. I read another book I remember that was called My Way Out. It was about um, taking different medications that were supposed to help with being able to control your drinking and learning to not care about how much you drank by taking the right medications. And I never went that route, but I, because I think I was scared of the medications and their side effects, but I did take the herbal supplements that the book recommended. And so there was that effort with, I'm going to take this kudzu route that's supposed to make it so I don't feel like I want to drink as much. That didn't work either. I mean, it was it was definitely a long stretch of, of trying to keep it under control with whatever means I could come up with and um, staying under control for a little while, but then once again, having another episode when it caused problems and made me feel terrible for it um but life went on and i had a good job and i was doing well at work and i over the years had three children who thank god are incredibly fantastic young adults now Uh, i'd always wanted children more than anything um they were absolutely the light of my life and still are um and throughout their childhood, my drinking was sporadic, like a lot of your callers and listeners. I think I didn't drink while I was pregnant. I didn't drink while I was nursing. That kind of gave me this boost of confidence that okay, maybe I'm maybe I'm okay. See, I could give it up while I was pregnant. I could uh, I could give it up for most of breastfeeding. Uh, but then as soon as the, the the babies were done, the breastfeeding was done, the drinking reentered at first, gradually, slowly, you know, a little bit at a time, trying to measure. I'll have two drinks once a week. I'll have two drinks only on weekends. Uh, of course, it was never I'll have one drink. I remember clearly even telling other people one drink now, but I can try to keep it to two. Uh, and having more rules, you know, and having lots of days when I wasn't drinking at all. I felt such commitment to my children and not wanting to be intoxicated, even the slightest bit in front of them. Um, But then there were times when I was and when I would, uh, you know, fall asleep singing lullabies or hear that my speech was slurred as I was Reading bedtime stories to them—they were very little—and you know, I've always trusted that they didn't know it was anything other than that mommy was getting tired and falling asleep. Uh, and of course, I was tired. I had three little boys. I was uh, there was that, but there was also—you know—it was certainly made worse by those evenings of I'm gonna have a glass of wine tonight, I'm gonna have another one, I'm gonna have a third. Um, so as much as I adored being their mother, it was, it was hard as most mothers would attest. It was not easy. Marriage wasn't easy. Um, I don't think that any of my kids would tell you that they have memories of my drinking. Uh, in fact, I had a, a really wonderful talk with my 20 year old son just last night. He's home from college and told him about this because I wanted to tell him I was doing this podcast and wanted to explain to him a little bit why I don't drink now. And he said he had no idea. He just had never known that he knew I had stopped drinking and uh, he knew there was probably some reason why that I hadn't really talked about. Um, But it was good to get it out in the open with him and let him know that Um, but it it was also good to hear him say, I don't remember, I don't remember any times when you were drunk. Um, but that's not because I was so able to, um, not drink. (laughs) It's because I hit it. I controlled it. I limited it. I, you know, waited till they went to bed or I had, you know, just a Enough to kind of take the edge off and not anymore because I knew I wanted to be able to um, function with them. I made meals. I played games. I did art projects. I volunteered in their classrooms. Um, But sometimes I was doing those things with a hangover. And sometimes I was doing them with incredible cravings for drinks so that I would be out, you know, playing mini golf or at the indoor trampoline park. And my mind was on, when can I get home and when can I have that drink? And how much longer can I take this before I get to drink? And they, they were such great kids. And yet I have, I have journal entries that help me remember. I remember recently reading one that said, I had three glasses of wine tonight, one for each boy. And it was really, it was written with guilt, but also with this acknowledgement that, oh my God, this is so hard. <laughs> Young kids, close in age, loud, squabbling, wild, needing constant supervision, um, such a joy, but a challenge. And again, an excuse to, all right, now my excuse is different than it had been, uh but I have this reason to keep numbing. Um, and it really isn't as if I didn't quit, because I would quit for uh, weeks, months at a time, uh, at times. And t- during some of those times, I did try to get some help. I went to a few 12-step meetings. For a while, I was going to smart recovery meetings. I went online to smart recovery for support um, And none of that clicked long term for me. I'm not really sure why because I know how well those things have worked for other people. Um, I've always thought that part of why I didn't uh, get the help that I could have and that was there and was available uh, to the full extent uh, that I might have is because I hadn't gotten so bad, my life hadn't gotten so bad that I couldn't say, I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to, I'm going to keep doing it and control it. Um, I didn't have the, some of the big major outward signs. I had a successful career um, as a psychotherapist of all things. I was helping other people. I knew I was good at the work I was doing. Uh, I wasn't drinking at work. I was, uh, not missing work. It was just that on that drive home at the end of the day, I had to fight myself not to pull in and get wine at the store along the way home. And then if I did, I had to fight myself not to open it in the car and start drinking it before I got home. So I was, life was going on and I was doing just fine from the outside. Anybody looking in, I, I think, would have said, wow, she's she's doing great. Um, I had a nice home. I had a nice husband, good marriage, um, terrific kids. Um, and no one told me that I drank too much, not even my husband. Um, I had one good friend, and who she's still a very good friend. I talked with her about it regularly. Uh, but she and I were both very much in the same boat. So, back and forth between drinking and not drinking for years and getting together and talking about it. Um, And I think to some extent kind of continuing the cycle for each other. So we would, we would come together to have our confession of, Oh, I screwed up. I had gone 20 days, but then I drank. Oh, me too. That's okay. Let's start again tomorrow. And, and uh, that was certainly good for harm reduction and, and keeping it from getting any worse than it did. Um, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't a stopping point. It wasn't everything that I needed to kind of um, get to a point of actually stopping and recognizing that the thing I thought was making me feel better was making my problem so much worse. So the, the balm for my calm And my anxiety was creating more anxiety and creating more depression. So it's been a a kind of excruciating (laughs) long period of partial control for years uh, until I went on a retreat in November when I met Jean uh, and I had been listening to the bubble hour for years and loving Jean and unpickled and had met her at a party, met you at a party um, a few years before a bubble hour party and, and so looked up to you. And when I found out you were going to be running a retreat that I was going to get to go on, I, um, I jumped on it. And at that point I'd been sober for a month and I went to this, uh, to this yoga slash recovery retreat through She Recovers, an organization that is incredible and wonderful, I think. Um, And there I met a group of about 30 women who all had my story or some version of it. Um, And, yes, some of them had had DUIs, some had been to rehab, um, some had had more severe and and painful, tragic consequences because of their drinking. Um, but basically, we all had the same story. It didn't matter if we had been a three to four glasses of Chardonnay kind of drinker or a pint of vodka kind of drinker. We were in this together. We understood each other. We respected each other we cared about each other and it just was mind blowing to me. It was a new world and somehow I, and I think it, it exists at 12 step meetings and smart recovery meetings and, you know, women for sobriety and there are certainly other arenas where that can happen. For me, it had not yet. And then it did. And that has made a huge difference for me. Um, I've stayed in contact with those people. We've made plans to get together. We've we've had visits. We're in daily touch through kind of messaging on a secret Facebook group. Our little group called She Rises, um, because we see ourselves as rising from the flames. Uh, that has has helped more than anything. Uh, that and a couple of other things that I really want to mention. And one is uh, learning to tolerate unpleasant feelings. And it's, it's odd that as, uh, that as a, a psychotherapist, for one thing, but even just as a person, that it's taken me this long to recognize that sometimes you just have to feel awful, you have to feel anxious, and you have to feel down, and you have to feel that edgy "I want to drink." feeling uh, and not have one and not numb it and now when I start to feel bad you know insecure anxious not good enough nervous um, hurt jealous whatever the feelings are I am much better able to just say okay this is part of life this is this is part of everybody's life. This is being human. I can live with this. I don't have to numb it. I don't have to change it. It will go away on its own. I have other ways of finding comfort. Um, and I will, I will use those ways. And primarily that way is reaching out to other people who, uh, whom I trust uh, and can share that with. So that's one of the one of the major things or or two of them really, the kind of need to tolerate unpleasant feelings and the recognition that they will pass, and that there are other things to find comfort in besides the numbing effect of alcohol. I think I've had to learn self compassion, and that's an ongoing process, just to learn uh, to stop apologizing, to stop feeling I'm not good enough, apologizing not only to other people, but to myself, that kind of inner critic that so many of us have saying, you didn't do this well enough. You know, you're, you're not dressed well enough. Your hair doesn't look good enough. You're too fat. You're too thin. You ate too much. You, um, you know, your house isn't as nice as other people's. You don't take as many vacations as you should. You just, they the constant barrage of criticisms that I think a lot of us, and maybe I haven't done the research, but maybe especially a lot of us who have issues with substance use um, are sort of plagued with. Um, and so I read uh, at this is sort of my segue into, I read a wonderful blog post um, by my friend Erica, whom I met at that retreat where I met Eugene, uh, who started a blog, it's called com, and she has written some amazing pieces that I hope everybody will read. One of them was an open letter to women everywhere. And she uh, she wrote just about um, hearing our own voices, letting ourselves be heard, not making ourselves so small, not being so hard on ourselves, accepting ourselves the way we are. Uh, kind of all the messages that I think so many of us need to hear again and again. Um, and that's what inspired this poem that I wrote that you mentioned at the beginning. And, uh, if you want me to, I would read it.
1: Uh, I, I would love you to you, read it.
2: Is this a good time to, to jump into that? Uh, perfect. Yeah. So, um, uh, this is a poem about being, about saying I'm sorry and about learning not to be so sorry all the time. Uh, and it refers at the end, just for context, to the, the group of women, really, that I've found in, um, in recovery, the, the She Rises group. But it really, in a bigger sense, could refer to every, every woman, every, every uh, man we know who can hold us up and help us out. Uh, I always said I'm sorry for everything I did. I think that it began when I was just a kid. I'm sorry that I'm little. I'm sorry I get mad. I'm sorry if I'm not as smart as my mom or dad. I'm sorry that I'm shy and that my chest is flat. I'm sorry I'm not ready to do the stuff like that. I'm sorry about the baby. He's colicky. He'll cry. I'm sorry I can't comfort him no matter how I try. I'm sorry for my house. It's messy. We have boys. I'm sorry for my car. It's making a strange noise. I'm sorry about my cooking. It isn't always great. I'm sorry that I'm tired. I'm sorry that I'm late. Sorry about the garden. The yard is such a mess. I need to do some weeding. We need to paint the fence. I'm sorry about my dog. He should be better trained. I'm sorry about my kitchen. I'm sorry about my brain. I'm sorry about my hair. I'm sorry I'm a bore. I'm sorry. Sometimes I forget what I said before. Sorry I was quiet. Sorry if I said too much. Sorry I was clumsy. Sorry I was rushed. Sorry I spent money. Sorry I was cheap. Sorry I'm so sensitive. Sorry I'm too deep. Sorry that I drank too much. Sorry that I quit. Sorry if you find that weird. Sorry for all my shit. I've been sorry for my flaws, each and every one. And yet, I have to tell you, sorry isn't fun. I'm sick of saying sorry or swallowing my words. It's time I just said, fuck that. All these sorries are absurd. I'm not sorry for my thoughts, my hips, my breasts, my brain. I'm not sorry for my feelings. I'm not sorry for my pain. I'm not sorry for my cooking. It's nourishing and good. I'm not sorry for my car. It takes me where it should. I'm not sorry for my home. It's filled with love and care. I'm not sorry for my body, my wrinkles or my hair. I'm not sorry for my voice. I think it should be heard. I'm not sorry for the many times I'm searching for a word. I'm not sorry that I'm sober. It's how I want to be. I'm not sorry if you wish I'd drink. I'll have a cup of tea. I'm not sorry that I'm human warm and soft and kind. I'm not sorry I'm imperfect in body and in mind. I'm ready for that chapter of apologies to end. I'm ready for acceptance of everything I am. And so I'll just apologize one last heartfelt time to the person that I've been and am, the person that is fine. I'm sorry, little girl, that I criticized you so. I'm sorry, awkward teenager. I should have let you know that you were truly lovely, compassionate, and smart. I'm sorry, brand new mother, with your enormous heart. I'm sorry, middle-aged me. I love you. You're a dear. I'm sorry that I've hurt you. But that is stopping here. I'm finding self-compassion. The missing link, I think. I know it's what I didn't have when I would choose to drink. My light is shining brightly. My sisters are at hand. I'm ready to take care of me in every way I can. I'm rising through my sadness. I'm rising from my pain. I'm rising from my guilt. I'm rising from my shame. I'm ready now to stand. I'm ready soon to soar. I'm ready. Please come with me.
1: I see an open door. Well, it's a good thing this is a podcast and not a TV show because I'm ugly crying over here. Oh, <laughs> oh, you're sweet.
2: Wow, well, you have played such a, an instrumental role in helping me to find my voice, Jean. And <sighs> I'm very
1: grateful for that. Oh, to hear you read that, Nancy. When, I, when you sent it and I read it, and I bawled every time I looked at it. I imagined it in your voice. Oh, but to hear you read it is just... I hope this episode goes viral because I think so many of us <laughs> see ourselves, hear ourselves in those words, and are reminded to look back and and give ourselves our love. And I, it just occurred to me that as a psychotherapist, you would know it's a really important tool for healing to go back and visit those painful times where we felt abandoned in our life and betrayed and to offer ourselves retroactively the love we needed to get didn't get <clears throat> oh <man>. yeah <laughs> um, i think that's absolutely true
2: and and i i see it in so many people, both in my work and in my life and in this beautiful world of recovery, I've discovered, um, that feeling of somewhere along the line, I, I got the message intentionally or not, that something wasn't good enough about me. And then the next experience fed on that and built it up. And it does take some going back and, and remembering, um, And kind of undoing, trying to heal that little girl we all once were, or the young woman who was hurt and is hurting.
1: I I think that's partly why it's so important that in our recovery, we connect with other people and have a chance to talk and exchange our stories because... When we listen and hold space for other people, or when we help them, we're we're learning how to help ourselves, and we're also learning how to receive help from other people. And um, and much as I'm flattered and and grateful for our friendship, and and touched to hear you say that um, that I was part of of your healing. I know that you did that, not me, that Mm -hmm. it was that you um, felt safe and, and right. And just like the familiarity of my voice, let you know Mm -hmm. you were safe with me and that, that, we liked each other, you know. We we liked yeah. we we liked being together, and had yeah. like a, a fondness for each other. And then that sort of bred a state of safety and comfort that then allowed you to do what you needed to heal yourself. And it's all a tool, right? I mean, all of these amazing people and groups and things that are out there. I mean, we look at women like Annie Grace and Don Nickel and Mm -hmm. Laura and Holly and people that are doing big things that that help a lot of people and the temptation is to treat them like celebrities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They don't see themselves that way. And that's why they can be effective is because it's just holding up a tool that you can use and then holding space. And letting, like, as soon as ego gets involved, it's trouble. And so I think the people that are really doing good work and, and allowing other people to, to do the good work on themselves, the way that you just talked us through is all about helping one another. And I just feel like in recovery that happens on on, on levels big and small and that, you know, the, the, our little circle, our she she-rises circle – which, you know, we've talked about our group and I know I'm going to get emails of people saying, how can I join that group? It sounds so great. Yeah. Ours is a closed group. It's just for our women that, that met on our retreat, but here's how you can join a group is meet some women and create one. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. Right. Like go to a, go to a meeting, go to a meet up, go to a retreat, go to a, go, mm-hmm. get, put yourself out there and make real connections. And then, and then for you, that was pivotal. For you, Absolutely. that was the only thing that was missing. You had the expertise. You had the tools. You had all the yeah. power to heal yourself within you, but it was that connection that really put you over the edge of what you needed to change your life. Right. Yeah. Exactly. There's I'm, so much I'm that can get in the way. It's so much. The Addiction leverages that, right? Addiction's like, oh, look over here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh, these people aren't really your people. This isn't the right group
2: for you. And, and what if somebody sees you here at this meeting and, you know, you've got to maintain your reputation or your, there's so many excuses for not connecting Um, or even just a determined independence. I'm going to, I can do this on my own. Why do I need someone else to help me stop drinking? That held me back for so long and being able to say, yes, I do need help. Just last night, I was surrounded by family members who were all enjoying their glasses of wine. And and I could feel that angst building up in me and that, oh, God, how do I not have a drink? Do I have to go be in another room and not even be around these people? And and I sent a quick note to my little group saying, help <laughs> And they, you know, I immediately got back messages that said, we're with you, just pretend we're there by your side and imagine that we're all together, not drinking. And um, it was just, that's what I needed. And I think that's probably what most of us need is, you know, whether it's one person or a group of people, a therapist, uh, although I've had therapists over the years who knew about my drinking, and I think there's. There's something to be said for peers who are um, are supporting you too, you know a, a group of people who feel like they're your they've got your back all the time uh, so I wish like- for everyone
1: listening that they could find that yeah i agree i'm I'm particularly grateful to you that you um, shared that you are a psychotherapist, and and also a good one and a successful one, because I feel like there's people listening that are in a lot of helping professions of various kinds who feel like they are some kind of a failure and a fraud or an imposter, because they're able to help other people without helping themselves. And um, I think you spoke really beautifully to to the fact that that doesn't mean you're not good at <laughs> what you do. yeah. And, and the idea that you should be able to heal yourself alone through the mm-hmm. power of the tools that you have, um, that that's, that's a fallacy that our mind comes up with to keep us stuck. Would right. you agree?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I've certainly struggled with that myself, that feeling of, well, how can I be an effective therapist when i have this big problem i haven't figured out and handled and shouldn't i be the kind of epitome of wellness and and happiness and um in order to do my work but i've actually come to think that a therapist who has struggled who has their own pain and knows what that is like whether it's depression or anxiety or loss or grief or an addiction, you know in some ways it has more to offer um, because we've been through it or we are going through it, and we can empathize um, not to mention that virtually everybody has had some of those things, so you're probably not going to find someone who hasn't. But yeah, it brings, it brings a different depth to the work. Uh, not that it needs to be shared with the people we're helping. It, it doesn't um, necessarily. But in our own heads, if we're not judging and we're just listening and we're understanding and we're caring because we know how it is, I think that's a gift we can bring to other people. Um, and not so much something to be ashamed of or to try to hide or deny. So.
1: Well, I think that you've just spoken such words of truth that um, we really can't add to this. I think mm-hmm. this has just been a, a perfect, perfect hour to hear your truth and to feel moved and and. Taught by you. I thank you so, so much for not just taking the time, but for just your open heartedness and everything that you've given to me and to the listeners of this show in, in the last hour. Thank you so much, Nancy. Oh, well, you're welcome and thank you for
2: giving me the opportunity to do it. It means a lot to me.
1: I'm glad to. And listeners, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say that some of you might have some feedback for Nancy. (laughs) Um, If you would like to write to her, send your emails to thebubblehour at gmail.com and I will forward them to Nancy so that she can uh, get your messages. A few days after this airs, I will talk to Nancy about finding a way to post her beautiful poem, where you can maybe read it so that you don't have to try to write out your own copy of it because I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of people that want to hear it and are going to be pressing pause and writing out the lines that you said uh-huh. <laughs> That's what I'd be doing um, so I'll make sure that we find a way that that people can uh, get a copy of that for their own use as well because I think it's a keeper for sure a classic an instant classic Nancy oh, thank you thank so you. much and listeners, that's all for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm grateful to you for listening. I'm grateful to Nancy for being here. That's all, everyone. Thank you so much. And until next time, take good care.
0: I own it, it, not proud that that was me. And when I face little I'm not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power, weakness, head on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies down. We oh, you think you're strong, just cause you keep it on the side. It oh, just stays and waits there. Rob you of your pride. Turn the light on. Turn the light on. You can shine when you stand tall. Oh, I did that. Not proud, that that was me. And when I face it, I take that a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses. I just want to be free. Shout it out. One two, three.